So how's everybody doing tonight? Yeah? How are you? I'm super. Thank you. Yeah. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Judges chapter 20. They do Judges 20 and 21 tonight. Finish out the book. And that'll be it. That'll be it. Be a good time. Then you're back to Sam. At the the regu regularly scheduled programming coming back. All right, y'all there? Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this, you know, this opportunity that you've given us, this time that you've blessed us with to be here, to get into your word, and to see what your spirit would say to us. And I pray, Lord, that, um, you know, as he moves in our midst, that he would find open and receptive hearts, you know, willing and waiting to hear from you, hungering for your truth, desiring nothing more than to draw close to you, to sit before you, and to receive what only can come from you. So, Lord, I do just praise you. Ask, Lord, your blessing upon this time. It's in your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. Okay, so Judges chapter 20. <clears throat> Today, uh, we're going to finish the book of Judges, and um, it's, it's unfortunate to finish it here. Uh, maybe if we finished it a couple of weeks ago where uh, the story of Samson is, the last judge in the book, it would have been a, a much more exciting and, and satisfying end. Uh, it, it goes out on just such a sour note to characterize the time uh, that, that the judges lived through, that they existed in. And, and I was thinking about it during the last song, you know, where you were singing just every high and every low. And this has just been a book characterized by extreme highs and lows. I mean, it's been some of the most bright and beautiful times in Israel's early history. And then it's just been some of the most uh, dark and disturbing times during Israel's early history. And we end on just one of those dark, disturbing nights. Uh, not not quite, I know, ugh, again. I missed last week purposefully because I didn't want to hear it. But uh, it's the continuation of last week's study. Uh, so if you missed last week, th this story really begins in chapter 19. In chapter 19, we have there the, the story of this marital, uh, marital strife that leads to separation. This woman that uh, leaves her husband and uh, after four months, the husband, this Levite, decides to go after her. And, you, you know, maybe four months, uh, you know, playing the field with no success, trying to find another uh, young Israelite lady out there. And then he finally says, oh, just forget about it. I'll just go get the one that I had. And so he goes down to retrieve her from her father's house. And, uh, you know, after several days of the father keeping him there, he successfully, uh, you know, extracts his concubine. And they set off on their journey. They get to Gibba, this Benjaminite city, and, uh, and, and they're staying there, and then, and at night there comes just a, an awful pounding at the door, and the men of the city say, send out the man that is in there, this Levite man, send him out so that we can have sex with him. And, and the man, you know, trying to, uh, protect his purity and defend his dignity, he, uh, pushes his concubine that he had just so recently retrieved out the door to these ravenous, uh, sex-crazed men and uh, to just do whatever they, they see right in their eyes to do to her. And uh, they spend the entire night just raping and abusing her. And um, in the morning, they abandon her. And she has the strength to crawl back to the house, but she falls dead at the threshold of the house. And in the morning, it just very simply says that he got up to continue on his journey. You know, he just, uh, thinking so little of her, he opens up the door to continue on his journey and he steps over her maybe and the words that are recorded from his mouth are just simply, get up, let's go. And you can imagine the, the, the sight of this woman there and the condition that she would be after the night that she had just experienced. And, and he just simply looks at her and just says, get up. And, and, and when she doesn't, when he realizes that she's dead, he, takes her and throws her upon his donkey and continues on his journey. Getting home, he takes out his knife uh, to dismember the body. 
uh, cutting her into 12 pieces and sending her out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, the, the men of Israel saw this and they said, well, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel among the men of Israel. What do we do about such a thing happening in our land? And that's where we pick up in chapter 20. We'll go ahead and start with the first seven verses. Then all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mitzvah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their place in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 soldiers armed with swords. The Benjaminites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mitzvah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibba and Benjamin to spend the night. And during the night, the men of Gibba came out after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. And they raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to every region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Now all of you Israelites, speak up and give your verdict. I would have loved to have been there uh, with a copy of my Bible. You know, and this man speaks up and he says, well, they surrounded the house. And they wanted to kill me. Right? You, you can stand up and you could point to the Bible and say, well, well I, I don't see anything in here that, that says that they wanted to kill you. It says that they wanted to have sex with you. And he would continue and say, well, well they, took, they took my concubine and they raped her. And she's dead. And you can stand up and say, well, I hate to, I hate to keep on interrupting you, but I, I look in my record and, and I'm just so confused. I know that they surrounded the house, but did they break down the door of your house? And if they did, why didn't they take you? Weren't you the one that they were after? Uh, no, I mean, I, I see something very different here. They didn't take your concubine. You gave them your concubine. And actually in the Hebrew, it says that you forcibly took her and pushed her upon these people. Without a doubt, what the Benjaminites did was wicked. But this Levite is not without guilt. And so he sits before the tribes of Israel and tells this half-true story of what happened amongst the Benjaminites that night and stirs up this controversy. And, and now the Levite is going to disappear entirely from the story. But he will set in motion the greatest upheaval in Israel's early history. And we continue that in verse 8. And all the people rose as one man, saying, None of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do to Gibba. We'll go up against it as, as the lot directs. We'll take ten men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel and a hundred from every thousand and a thousand from every ten thousand to get provisions for the army. And then when the army arrives at Giva and Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for all this vileness done in Israel. So all the men of Israel got together and united as one man against uh, the city. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime? that was committed among you. Now surrender those wicked men of Gibba so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. What Israel did is right. right? These, these men uh, shed blood and now their blood would be shed. The, the wicked men of Gibba, uh, they had committed a capital crime and now they would receive capital punishment just according to God's word and God's law. Now, I think it's worth noting, and, and Gil mentioned it last week as we talked about this text after, that it speaks nothing of the homosexuality of the Benjaminites, does it? And as far as the Israelites were concerned, this had nothing to do with homosexuality and their retaliation against these people because the Levite dropped it entirely from the story. He didn't tell them that they wanted to have sex with him. So as far as they're concerned, they're going out to pay back the tribe of Benjamin because they had raped and murdered a woman. And that this atrocity just simply could not be brushed aside and forgotten 
there had to be something uh, done about this uh, to purge the land of this vileness. But continuing there in verse 13, the Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Geba to fight against the Israelites. And at once the Benjaminites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 chosen men from those living in Geba. And among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting men. It's difficult to imagine why Benjamin would do this, right? Why would they... Uh, why would they rather launch into an all-out war against Israel rather than surrender the few men from a single town, you know, in, in Benjamin? And, and the best that I can come to a conclusion about is, is maybe they just didn't see anything wrong with what the men of Geba did. And, and they thought, well, after all, this is our land. And this is our lot. And, and who are you to come into to my place and my space and tell me how to live my life? After all, this is a time where there is no king in Israel, and everyone is simply doing what is right in their own eyes. And this is what is right for me to do in my own eyes. And, and Boo is, is obsessed uh, with this show. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, it's, it's this show, Hoarders. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. Um, you're shaking your head, so you're, you're a Hoarders fan. She likes to watch this show and then compulsively clean our house, which I find... Which I find interesting. I guess it's motivation. Um, but if you've seen the show Hoarders, you know that, uh, that, that there's usually a consistent pattern and progression that follows the show. And, and, and you have these people, and it starts in the house, and maybe for so many of these houses, you, you would see it from the street and think that there is nothing unusual about that house. And as soon as they open up the door, it's filled from floor to ceiling with stuff, just piles and piles of stuff. And there's old newspapers in there, and there's food wrappers in there, and it's just, it's a disgusting mess of stuff that you just have to climb over. And there was this one lady that, that had just hundreds of hand puppets in her house, and it seemed bizarre and creepy to me, you know? And there was, this, uh, there was this guy that had hundreds of skateboards in his house, and they were just all over the place in there. There, there was this lady that, that believed that rotten food was better for you. So when her refrigerator broke, she never bothered to have it fixed, and it was just filled with mold, and she had bags of rotten food hanging uh, from the ceiling and hanging from the walls and, and jars of rotten food on the countertops to keep it away from the rats that were all over her house. And, and, and they would come in, and then the men, they were picking these bags out and saying, well, we got to throw this food away. It's rotten. And she just grabbed it and popped it into her mouth and said, it's fine. It's perfect. And it was disgusting and disgraceful. And, and, but, 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 but if you've seen the show, you know that something happens with these people over the course of time. That, that, that some of these people that have been hoarding for a longer period of time. It just simply can't be contained in the house. And over the course of time, it just spills outside the house, their habit, and it fills up their lawn. And now they have tubs and cars and toilets on their lawn. They have uh, you know, soggy couches and teddy bears and chemicals, and, and it's disgusting and filthy. And, and they would say, well, you know what? I can't get rid of any of this stuff. It's important to me. And I can't get rid of this stuff. It's, it's my property. And they would say, well, who are you to tell me what to do with my stuff? It doesn't affect you. It has nothing to do with you. But, but that land affects everyone around them. It causes problems for those near them. And, and you see just, just, just the rats and bugs drawn to these places, infesting the community around them. And the funky stench, this cloud that's just over the community all around this place. And I see this all the time with young people, right? They're, they're not hoarders. That, that's not what I'm saying. But they say, well, this is my life, and I'm going to live it the way that I want to live it. And it's not your life, so why don't you just stay out of it? 
And after all, in your, in your 30 years, in your 40 years, in your 50 years, what do you know? Right? So I'm going to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I'm going to, you know, drink however much I want to. I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to. And, and, and it only affects me. It doesn't affect you. But that's not true. It affects everyone around us. The, the, our, our, these decisions, this sin is like the rats that come out of us, infesting those that we love and care about. And I've seen, you know, the, the, these kids, they have this mentality, I'm going to sleep with whoever I want, and it's no business of yours to so stay out of it, and then they have a kid. And, and they can't afford to raise the kid. So their parents end up raising the kid. In the golden years of their retirement, when they're supposed to be slowing down, settling down, and enjoying life. You know, and, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And so they show up to work drunk and they get fired and they have to move in with their friends. They're bouncing around, hitting everyone up for money. It doesn't just affect you. Our decisions affect everyone around us. Benjamin says, we're not going to hand over these men in our land. This is our land. And what we do on our land is none of your business. So get out. Butt out. We don't need to hear from you. This has nothing to do with you. But they were wrong. Their sin had permeated the community. Our sin uh, afflicts our family. It affects our entire community. And so they came out, 26,000 men against Israel's 400,000. And it looks like it's just going to be a complete bloodbath. Uh, but, but the story is surprising. When we read it, beginning in verse 18, it said, The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, Who of us shall go first to fight against the Benjaminites? And the Lord replied, Judah shall go first. And the next morning, the Israelites got up, pitched camp near Geba, and the men of Israel went out to fight the Benjaminites and took up battle positions against them at Geba. And the Benjaminites came out um, of Geba and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. So Israel gets together and they're, they're the, they're the strong ones. They have 400,000. First day they come out and they say, okay, God, uh, you know, what, what do you want us to do? We're ready. We're good. Let's go into battle. And God says, okay, go. And 22,000 die. It's like, we lost. How did we lose? And, and, and what happened? And in verse 22, but the men of Israel encouraged one another. And again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord. They said, shall we go up again to battle against Benjamin, our brothers? And the Lord answered, yeah, go up against them. And the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. And this time, when the Benjaminites came out from Geba to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. The second day, there's not so much uh, bravado. They, they come out and and then you know the first day they they were they were like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go kill some evil people. And God says, okay, go. And and twenty two thousand die. And the second day, they they come back and and they have tears in their eyes and they're much more sincere, and and, and they're serious and and maybe they can point to a tear and say, okay, God, you, you see this, right? Now I'm serious. Now I'm sincere. And you know my heart, and it's tender. And, and so I'm here before you. Can I go to battle now? And God says, yeah, sure, go. And they do. And 18,000 die. And it's not as much as the first day, but it's still a severe loss. And, and so what happened? And, and they would say, and, and how do we lose? And in verse 26, the Israelites, all the people, they went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. And they fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, ministered, ministering before it. And they asked, Shall we go up again to battle with Benjamin, our brothers, or not? And the Lord responded, Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. I think it's one thing uh, to desire to do what is right. 
And, and I think it's a completely other thing to do what is right in the right way. Right? It's a, it's a good thing to want to serve God. But I think if we set out and, and, and in our desire to serve God, if our motivation is in the wrong place, if it's based on our self-effort, our result will be nothing but failure and frustration. It'll be the fruit of our work. We'll end up spending our time spinning our wheels. And, and you know, we can come before God and be like, God, what do you want me to do? You know, I want to go out, I want to do this thing. And God will just say, okay, go for it. But if you want to do it right, and if you want results that will last and be blessed, and why don't you stop trying to solve the problems? Maybe, maybe that, that's what God would say. And, 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 and maybe, why don't you just sit before me and take some time to get alone and just fellowship with me? And, and and understand that this problem, it, it isn't yours, it isn't mine, it isn't ours to solve. And it's just God's. And it's his responsibility to accomplish it. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Right? I'll, I'll never forget uh, when I was when I was in uh, Vienna, um, we took this mission trip to uh, Austria. And I was there for a week, and um, and we just had these weeks, or we just had this week to be on the streets, you know, that that Mozart walked when he was composing his masterpieces, and to evangelize the lost sheep of that city. And it was this amazing opportunity, and and you know, we just had this enthusiasm and this vigor. We're just going to go out there, and we're going to win souls for Jesus. And it's just as if Jesus passively said to us. Okay, if you think it's that easy, have at it. And and we just went out there, and for three days, the first three days of that trip, we just absolutely spun our wheels to no avail. And we were just frustrated failures. And and everyone we talked to, it was just uh, it was it was like a terrible, awkward conversation. And uh, not a single soul was saved. And we were completely divided. We were at each other's throats. And um, we actually lost someone. Uh, on the third day for about nine hours on the trip, you know, and it's like, we're, we're all in Vienna. We've never been there before. We have no idea what we're doing. And this guy just disappears. And, um, and we were just walking around like, you know, where is he? We've got to find this guy. And they're like, well, it's your fault. You should have watched him. And it's like, oh, so typical. You to blame others. You know, and then someone chimes in, guys, we're on a mission trip. Let's be spiritual. Shut up. You know, and it's like, we're just, it was a terrible, terrible time. And it was just, and when we got home and he was waiting, he was waiting at the home. He was like, I got lost, so I just went home. And we were like, I, I, could, I could murder you right now. And, uh, and the pastor of the church actually said to us on the first day when we got there, um, and, he said to it, and he said it to us on the third, or after the third day uh, that we were there, he said the same thing. He said, uh, you know, when, when we first came to this city, um, we spent the entire first month just up on a hill that overlooked the city just praying and often fasting. And, and we determined that it was just more important uh, for us to wait on God to do the work than for us to just try and work on his behalf. And on the first day when we heard that, we thought, okay, well, that was really, that was adorable, this pastor, I tell you. Uh, but we only have a week here. We have a lot of work to do. So we're just going to set off and we're going to do the work. You know, we're going we're gonna to go in here and, it's going to be like a whirlwind of evangelism. The whole city is going to get saved. It's going to be amazing. But after that third day, we realized that all of our work uh, would amount to essentially nothing um, if God isn't in it and if God isn't the one that's doing it. And, and I think that we, we so often we just want to work, right, um, because we see things that need to get done. You know, you look around, you see unsaved people, and you're like, okay, well, let's sit together, form a brain trust, right? And Sam will be the chair, uh, you know, it's like, and Danny, he'll be, the, he'll be the enthusiasm of the group, and, uh, and Gil will run the numbers, you know? And it's like, we'll figure out, figure out how to do this, you know? Here's the problem, let's solve it. 
and, and it just seems, and, and it's so clear from this passage, that God is just so much more concerned with us having his heart and hearing his voice and having him as our focus rather than having the task or the work as our focus. And it's so easy to do that, to just say, well, this is the problem. It's at the forefront. I need to solve this. This is the focus. And that day we just sat upon a hill and we just prayed and we just fasted. And, and there was an anxious part of me. But you know, when we got down from the hill, the problem was still there. Only now I, I, I didn't walk into it seeing the problem. I just walk into it seeing the Lord and, and introducing the problem to the Lord and saying, well, problem, meet, meet my God that is greater than any problem. He's the one that can bring about a solution. For us in Vienna and for Israel here in, in Bethel, it's, it, 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 this is finally the moment where God doesn't just say to them, go. This is the moment where God says to him, go, and I'm going to go with you. This is the moment where God says, I'm going to give you the victory. So you're not just running out there to tackle an issue. You're just following God out there to watch him do what only he can do. And we just get to be a part of it. And it's a wonderful blessing to see. And so in verse 29, we see this promised victory that is taken to extraordinary lengths of debauchery. 29, then Israel set an ambush around Geba. They went up against the Benjaminites on the third day and took up positions against Geba. And as they had done before, the Benjaminites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, and so that about 30 men fell in the open field and on the roads, and one leading to Bethel and the other leading to Geba. And while the Benjaminites were saying, we're defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. And all the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and, and the Israelites and the Israelite ambush charged out of its place on the west of Geba. And then 10,000 of Israel's finest men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjaminites did not realize how near disaster was. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. On that day, the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjaminites, all the armed, or all armed with swords. Then the Benjaminites saw that, uh, that they were beaten. And this is going to kind of recap the story, the rest of these verses, from another perspective. Then the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they uh, relied on the ambush they had set near Gibeah, and the men who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out, and put the whole city to the sword. And the men of Israel had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city, and the men of uh, and then the men of Israel would turn in the battle. Benjaminites had begun to inflict casualties on the men of Israel, about 30, and this is all familiar. And they said, we're defeating them as in the first battle. But when the column of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjaminites turned, saw the smoke, the whole city going up into the sky. Then the men of Israel turned on them, and the men of Benjamin were terrified because they realized that disaster had come upon them. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the desert. But they could not escape the battle. And the men of Israel, who came out of the towns, cut them down there. And they surrounded the Benjaminites, causing them, or, or chasing them, and easily overrunning them in the vicinity of Geba on the east. 18,000 Benjaminites fell, all of them valiant warriors. And as they turned and fled towards the desert of the Rock of Rimmon, the Israelites uh, cut down 5,000 men along the roads, they kept progress or pressing after the Benjaminites as far as Gidim and struck down 2,000 more. So this is going to be 25,000 Benjaminites. Swordsmen fell, all of them valiant warriors. About 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the Rock of Rimmon, uh, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals 
and everything else they found and all the towns they came across they set on fire so it's amazing how God gave them this victory and they took it uh, as an opportunity for just absolute brutality they went from town to town and they they put everyone to the sword they killed them all so they slaughtered men women and children even killed the animals and they set all the houses on fire they left nothing behind they just went into this blind rage and they nearly wiped out an entire tribe of Israel Benjamin was guilty right but this punishment is just way too severe they had won the battle and then they extended the war beyond the battlefield and they slaughtered innocent people and unsuspecting villages and so now only 600 men from the tribe escaped the remnant of the people, the last alive in Benjamin. And very quickly, we're going to do chapter 21. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjaminite. And the people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? And, 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 and here's the wonderful part about it. They nearly wiped out one of their own tribes, and then they sit before God and they cry. They're like, God, why did you do this? Why, why, why has this terrible thing happened? And, 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 and I just imagine God's response. It's like, why did I do this? I didn't tell you to do this. You know, you know, and it's 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 amazing how we can be sometimes. You know, and 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 you know, it's like, why did I get fired? And why did I why did I get an F? And 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 why does she leave me? And why do they all say these terrible things about me? And why? And 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 why has this happened to me? And God would just say, you know, I don't know. You did it. You know, it's you did it. It's your fault. You know, it's not my fault. Don't don't come to me. Don't cry to me. Don't ask me. You, you know, ben, Benjamin, you would say, I, I didn't tell you to wipe out a tribe. I didn't tell you to kill women and children. I didn't tell you to burn their villages to the ground. You did all that. That was all you. So don't say, why did this happen? You're the reason this happened. You know, and John Corson has this wonderful thing in his commentary on this passage. And I, and I loved it. I had to write it down. He said, a good answer to give to a Christian when you're counseling them sometimes. And when they say, well, why is this happening to me? What's going on with me? What is God thinking? Is to just very simply say, you're an idiot. And I thought that it was, it was a brilliant little insight. And I think this is, a, this is a good thing to say to a Christian because we're all an idiot to one degree or another. You know, and, and you would say, you know, we sin, we overreact. We don't pray. We're not in God's word. And then when bad things happen, we just go and we say, why? Why, God? Why is this happening? What are you thinking? Where are you? What are you doing? And, and he said, no, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, that maybe you're hurting and this isn't what you, you want to be hearing, but you're an idiot and it's your fault. And, and, and this is just the natural consequence of your actions. And you don't need to, you know, get alone in your prayer closet and study great books of theology and, 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 and investigate the permissible will of God and why he allows certain inglorious things into our life. You just simply say, I did something dumb and this is the result. You know, maybe it's just that simple. You know, if I, if I don't study and I get an F, I, I don't need to go before God and say, oh God, what are you trying to tell me through this trial in my life? You know, if I'm a brutish, abusive, uh, wicked man and, and Boo leaves me, I don't need to say, Oh God, why is this happening to me? It's because of who I am and it's because of what I've done. And they wipe out thousands of people. Slaughter women and children, burn the cities to the ground. And then they say, God, why has this happened? Well, it's your fault. That's why it happened. You, you did this. The torch is still in your hand. You've done something foolish. You're an idiot. 
You need to take responsibility for it. You need to learn how to own it. And maybe we shouldn't be praying, God, why has this happened? Maybe we should just simply say, God, where do I go from here? God, well, what, what's the next step after here? And, and I would say that a wise thing to do is exactly what they did, is to return to the last place that you were at when you were truly connected to God, when you were hearing from God, when you were in a right relationship with God to retreat to that place, even as Revelation chapter 3 says, and it's a great verse to study what Jesus would say to the churches. And you give this threefold pattern there as he's exhorting the churches, and it's simply wrapped up in the R's to remember, to repent, and to repeat. To just simply say, God, I'm sorry. I remember what I used to be like when I was walking with you, and I want that back, so I'm going to return to you to the last place I was connected with you, doing those things that I was doing with you, and that's exactly what they do, to get back on course with their God. And in verse 4, they say, Early the next day the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. It's the last place that they were at when they were right with God. And so they primed the position to hear from God. I'm going to give God everything I need to hear from him. So I'm going to give this burnt offering to God. And the burnt offering, biblically, is always a, a symbol of sacrifice and surrender. So they're coming before God, they're bringing this burnt offering, and it's a picture of them submitting themselves to God. So God, whatever you have for me, I want to hear it, I want to do it. I'm going to be obedient to you. And the fellowship offering, which is biblically the, this picture uh, of realigning yourself, putting yourself in the position where you can communicate with God, and you can follow in action to God. So they say, God, I want nothing more than to hear from you, to obey you. And as they're there, uh, someone chimes in from the background and says, hey, you know what, we don't, we don't actually need to be doing this. We don't actually need to be praying and fasting. You don't need to be making these offerings. I've got a great idea. And so their ears perk up and they say, oh, really, what is it? And, and in saying that, they're saying, hey, listen, if you want to solve this problem, you need to stop listening to God, and you need to start listening to me. I've got some really great ideas. I've got Michael's five-point plan for success. Ten minutes put you on the right track. Just listen to me. I won't lead you astray. And, and a terrible thing happens there. Israel's in this place of brokenness and surrender. They're laying it all out before God. They're ready to listen to God. And then they're interrupted in their dialogue with God. And, and I think that maybe it's not a stretch to say that, that we can easily do that with people that are broken before God. And we see them just hurting and giving themselves to God. And they're just in that place where they're receptive to God. And then we step in and say, okay, well, this is my advice for you. This is what you need to do. And, and it's a dangerous thing. Hey, God can do amazing things in a person's life when they're broken, ready to hear from him, ready to receive from him. He can do this work in them that only he can do. And it's a dangerous thing to come in and speak on behalf of God and to, and to give an idea that maybe doesn't come from God. And, and so... That the course is deviated now. They've come before God. They're offering this burnt sacrifice. Then in verse 5, the Israelites asked, Who from all the tribes of Israel has fail, failed to assemble before the Lord? Now where did that come from? Did that come from God? It just came out of someone's brain. And, and for they have taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord of Mizpah shall certainly be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for their brothers, the Benjaminites. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel. And they said, how can we provide wives for those who are left, since we've taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? And then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord of Mizpah? And they discovered that no one came from Jabesh-Gilead. And, and they had not come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people... They found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. And so the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those that lived there, including the women and the children. 
this is what you're to do. They said, kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. And they found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp of at Shiloh in Canaan. And then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjaminites at the Rock of Bremen. So the Benjaminites returned at that time and were given to the women of Jabesh Gilead, uh, who had been spared. But there were not enough for all of them. So, so, so we have this problem, right? And, and, and we, we killed too many people. So how do we solve this problem? Let's kill some more people. And, and that's a great solution. It's a brilliant plan. And, and, and I know exactly, uh, you know, who we can kill. We can kill the group of people that aren't here. And so that's what they do. And they set out, they, 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 they kill, uh, hello, they kill, uh, it's a gnarly part to walk in on. They kill the men, they kill their wives, and they kidnap their virgin daughters. And they take these daughters to the men of Benjamin. And, and when they get there, they, they discover another problem, that they had only kidnapped 400 women, but there are 600 men. And that's not fair to those 200 men that don't get a kidnapped woman as their bride. And, and so this time, this time there is no remember, repent, repeat. This time there is no, let's make an offering and get alone with the heart of God. Maybe the same person chimes in that had the first idea and says, you know what, I've got another great idea. I know exactly what we can do. There's this place that we can go. And in verse 15, they say, the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. You know, God, I, I'm just, I'm, you really dropped the ball on this one. And, and I'm having to clean up your mess. Uh, you made the hole, and I'm just doing what I can to fix it. And in verse 16, all the elders assembled and said, uh, with the women of, of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? And the Benjaminite uh, survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken an oath. They're just so sincere about this oath. It's fine to kill men, women, and children, but we took an oath. We're going to be, we're going to be steadfast in our commitment to uphold it. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjaminite. But look, there's an annual festival of the Lord at Shiloh to the north of Bethel and east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and to the south of uh, Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjaminites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. And when the girls of Shiloh come out to join in dancing, then rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize a wife from the girls of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we'll say to them, Do us a kindness by helping us because we did not get wives for them during the war, and you are innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjaminites did. While the girls were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. And, and at this time the Israelites left that place, went home to their tribes and clans, and each to his own inheritance. And in those days... Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. In Shiloh, there's some ladies. They come out to dance. You know, it's like a, like the club in Shiloh. And all the women go there, and they dance. And all you have to do is just hide in the bushes, jump out, and snatch them up. And that's your wife, right? You just come out, and you club them over the head and drag them back to your cave. And if the fathers are upset, what are they going to do? You know, who are they going to complain to? This, this operation was organized by the warriors of Israel. So you're going to go to the army and say, hey, you took my daughter. They're going to say, go home. What are you going to do about it? You know, who are you against a multitude? So it was a terrible thing that they did. But to their credit, it was not the only terrible thing that they did. Right? And, and we can summarize 
the terrible things to maybe see the contrast of their efforts. So let's do that. Israel came out against Benjamin. Why? Why did they come out to attack Benjamin? Because Benjamin took the life of one woman. And in their war against Benjamin, they would take the lives of countless women. They murdered all the women and children of Benjamin until not a single one was left in the nation. They murdered all the men and women of Jabesh Gilead, and they kidnapped their daughters, forcing them into marriages with these strange foreign men. And then they kidnapped the young ladies who were dancing at a religious festival. Be like if there was a church dance night and a bunch of Christians came in here and snatched up kidnapped women to be their wives. And we realize that in this story, there are no heroes. There is only utter hypocrisy. And in an attempt to do what was right, they did something that was so much more terrible than what was done to them. And it's a really amazing thing to consider that all of that, all of this seemed right to them, right? That's the conclusion of the book. And it's the conclusion of the matter that this was a time in Israel's history where there was just no king. And so everyone just did whatever seemed right at the moment to do. And so murder, that's okay. But breaking an oath, that's wrong. And, and, it's, and it's bizarre. And it's confusing. But they would say, hey, we don't have a king over us to tell us to do this and to do that. So we're just doing our own thing. And, and we begin to see at the conclusion of the book that, that our time and the time of the judges is not that dissimilar. That, that here was a people uh, that, that had in the background of their lives a king who was waiting to be accepted by them a king that, that, that was desirous of a relationship with them, one that hoped to be honored and glorified through them. But the choice was up to them to accept him. And it's amazing how they had a king, but they didn't recognize him. And they had his word, which tells us what is right, but they didn't honor it. They didn't walk in it. And it's the same king uh, from the book of Deuteronomy uh, that would say, I, as your king, right, have set before you, where? In his word, life and death. Right? Now, choose what? Choose life. And it's this verse that we're all very familiar with. And, and it seems like an easy choice to make, right? Because who would ever choose death? That just sounds terrible. I mean, we all, like, I want to choose life. I want to I wanna live. But, um... But that only comes with the recognition of my king and his authority over me. It's connected to my relationship with him. And as I accept him over me, as Israel had the opportunity to accept him over them, I begin to see every day that, that he's a good king and that he's a merciful king. And that he doesn't desire what is damaging or, or difficult for me. He waits for me to impart life to me. He's such a good king that he warns me in his word. In Proverbs 14.12 is the verse that you can write at the beginning of the book. You can write it on every page of the book. You can write it over the book as the commentary the book and it's it's proverbs 14 12 and it says that there is a way that seems right to a man but in the end it leads to death everything just seemed right to these people every decision that they made they were like this is the right thing to do this is what's right for me but it brought nothing but death and darkness to their nation and God would say, you know, if you desire a better legacy than these sad men 
who did what was right in their own li- in their own eyes, but but left behind nothing but a stench of death. Then you need to take me as your king. Now, it's easy to to look at a book like this, and and it's easy to do this with with several places in the Bible. To just look at it and say, "Wow, how foolish and wicked can these people be?" I mean, you read this story, and there is nothing but idiocy and evil, and and and, and you're, it's overwhelming to consider the weight of it. The magnitude of it. But that's not the point of it. This passage exists as a prod upon us to drive us to consider ourselves. Because in over 3,000 years since this was written, he is still the king of kings. And he is still a good and merciful king. And he is still waiting before us daily with this decision for us to just simply say choose life you don't have to live your life doing what is right in your own eyes you can take me as your king and i can impart this to you truth to you life to you and 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 it's life that much more abundant and so for us uh, it's it's the same as israel the choice is before us to recognize or reject our king. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this book. But, you know, more than that, I, I thank you that we can make the decision that they did not we can see what they failed to see and we can have what they failed to have. We can look at them and just say, oh, it's a story of death and darkness. It's depraved and sad. But it's because they chose not to accept you as their king. They brought offerings to you which were supposed to symbolize submission to you, but they didn't regard you. Lord, I pray that for our lives, you know, as we leave this place and are daily faced with that decision, Lord, that every morning we just wake up and it would be like that morning on the hills of Vienna. It would be reaffirming our relationship with you, coming before you and giving you the center of our focus. And just saying, what would you have for me today, King Jesus? And Lord, I pray as we do, God, that you would do great things in our midst, that you would breathe life into us, and breathe life life into our community. And Lord, I praise you for it. I give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.